Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joy us today is Stephen Kinzer, an American author, journalist, and academic. He was a New York Times correspondent, has published several books, and currently writes for several newspapers and news agencies. His latest, latest book is The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of American Empire. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Stephen. Good to be with you. So your book deals with a fairly short time span at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and the debate over mostly the Spanish-American War. But before that debate, can you kind of set the scene in in the 1890s, the kind of world that we were living in that kind of led to this debate? 1898 was definitely the year when the United States changed more dramatically than in any single year. Uh, up until that time, during the 1890s, uh, the United States had gone through uh, some domestic crises. We'd had a, an economic upheaval in 1893. Uh, it had calmed down. So McKinley was president. People were pretty safe and happy. There was no desire inside the United States outside of a few rabid uh, political imperialists like Henry Cabot Lodge and Theodore Roosevelt to go off and conquer other countries or expand the borders of the United States past North America. We had grown up as a nation with this belief in uh, manifest destiny. It told us that it was our gift from God to take all of North America. And through our policies toward Mexico and towards the Native Americans, we managed to fulfill that manifest destiny. So then we get into 1890 when, of course, the uh, Census Bureau declared the frontier closed. Uh, so there's no more room to expand. Then comes a big moment when Americans have to ask themselves, so what do we do now? Effectively, we've been expanding ever since the pilgrims moved from Plymouth to Boston. So why stop now? We got to California. Shouldn't we just keep going? The other argument was, no, our manifest destiny was North America. That's it. We should now turn our energies into building up our country. So I think uh, we really were caught in a, in a dilemma. And it all goes all the way back to that famous speech by John Winthrop in uh, 1630 when he said, we shall be as a city upon a hill and the eyes of all people are upon us. What did he mean? Did he mean that we should create a virtuous society at home and then other countries and civilizations might look at us and copy us? Or did he mean the world is an evil place and our job is to go out into it and redeem it and make it better? We're still arguing about that. And uh, it was that argument really that emerged for the first time uh, in this period uh, after decades of being actually satisfied with the size and power that we wielded. And I think it's important to remember that although we had some international entanglements, I think to use the entanglements, to use the Washington phrase, before the Spanish-American War, uh, there was there was a general awareness, or at least it seems from your book, that at least for a lot of people, that was not what America was about. People remembered Washington's uh, entanglement speech. They remembered that we have a restrained foreign policy to some degree, at least not, at least compared to now, when we just sort of assume that America is going to be involved in almost every continent and country in the world. You're absolutely right. And I think there was another factor beyond those that you mentioned. Uh, the United States had been a colony. We were subjected by a foreign power. It had never happened in modern history that a country that had been a colony would then emerge to take colonies, that, that a country that had been ruled from afar and had rebelled 
to overthrow foreign rule would then be attempting to impose its rule on foreign countries. So this seemed like a tremendous contradiction of the, in the entire mission of the United States in the world. I think it was that force that was the biggest obstacle. That's what the expansionists had to overcome, this view that uh, we are a beacon of freedom in the world. We became an independent nation by overthrowing foreign power and asserting the right of every people to rule themselves. How can we now go out and subject other people to our rule? That, I think, uh, was something that was deep in American psychology and had to be changed in order for us to uh, set out on this new path. So one of the things that we see today is there's a disconnect. There's often a disconnect between the foreign policy opinions of foreign policy opinion makers, whether they're in government or in think tanks, and then kind of the the American people might have slightly different ideas. So when we're talking about this debate that you've just been describing or these changing attitudes about what America is or how big we should be or where we should go, are these debates that are happening – these kind of popular debates like the the people of the time are changing their views or are these concentrated more among the the Washington elite and the decision makers it happened in both ways so there was a small core of militant imperialists in Washington led essentially by Henry Cabot Lodge he he was kind of the mephistopheles behind this whole project uh but lodge was a uh, not a person who could reach the masses. Um, he hated ordinary people and he had no desire to uh, pretend otherwise. He was an unabashed elitist, an aristocrat. He would never campaign and seek the votes of the filthy masses. He had a very high-pitched voice. He was just not a charismatic figure, but he was very powerful inside Washington. So you needed uh, others. Uh, and the group that emerged is really interesting. So Theodore Roosevelt was this charismatic figure uh, who could do everything that Lodge could not. He could kind of rouse popular opinion. So he became the public face of the imperial project uh, and tied it to the natural energy and youth and vigor of the American people. Uh, in addition, you had in Washington the emergence of uh, – Alfred Thayer Mahan, the naval officer who wrote a f very influential book uh, called The Influence of Sea Power on History. He became kind of the toast of Washington, and he had this theory that great nations always have big armies and navies, and are, especially navies, and are all over the world and control islands and isthmuses everywhere. So that shaped uh, Washington opinion, but it still wasn't enough to uh, appeal to the masses, to break this giant uh, obstacle of feeling that the United States has no business interfering in other countries. That became the job of the yellow press. And the press played a role actually quite comparable to the role that it played in uh, the, the run-up to the Iraq War. The number one uh, drum banger in the war chorus in those days was William Randolph Hearst of the New York Journal. Hearst recognized, which something that the press recognizes very much today, and that is if you really want to sell papers or if you really want people to tune in, uh, you need a running story, a story that goes every day, not just a bridge falls down. That's just a one-day story. And Hearst understood the best running story of all, it's a war. 
as soon as Americans are fighting anywhere in the world, he understood he could sell lots of papers. You can always invent heroes and battles and defeats and great stories if there's a war. So he set out very deliberately to figure out where is there a war going on that the United States could get into? It, it happened that there had been uh, a, an uprising going on in Cuba for several years. And Hearst set out to turn the American people in, uh, into a state of outrage at the horrible brutalities that were being perpetrated in Cuba so that this outrage would push the United States to intervene, thereby giving William Randolph Hearst the ability to make millions and become a major figure shaping American life. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, William Randolph Hearst is a fascinating figure in this. And one of the weirdest stories is how he actually went down to Cuba to try and fight in the war. Yeah, can you tell a little about that? Uh, these people were kind of playing a game. Teddy Roosevelt, very much the same. Uh, Roosevelt had these fantasies about war, which he thought was essentially the noblest of all human endeavors. I even found a letter uh, when I was researching this book in which he writes to someone saying, uh, I would favor almost any war because I believe this country needs one. Uh, and once one was declared, largely with Roosevelt's help, uh, Roosevelt was eager to go down and fight. And no, no governor wanted to name him. In those days, there was no federal army, so you had to be named by a governor to set up a militia. Finally, Henry Cabot Lodge arranged for the territorial governor of Arizona to let him become a kind of bogus officer, and he fought for two half days. But he did rise to glory. And William Randolph Hearst was very jealous about this. And he actually wrote a sad letter to his mother saying he made such a big mistake. And there's Teddy Roosevelt fighting. Hearst, you know, you know, actually a way that you would imagine Donald Trump uh, suggesting, even told the Navy, if you make me an officer, I'll buy the boat. I'll, I'll create it. I'll give you the ship and I'll be the captain, right? And of course, the Navy said, you can't be the captain of a ship. You don't know anything about warfare. So um, he didn't even have a friend like uh, Roosevelt did in Henry Cabot Lodge to go to some official and say, yeah, I know he doesn't know anything about warfare, but give him a commission anyway. So Hearst couldn't get into the war. But he did rent a boat, and they went down there to kind of to watch the war. And at one point, he uh, even went ashore because he saw uh, the wreckage of a uh, Spanish ship, and he he took a little uh, rowboat, a dinghy, onto the shore and dramatically announced, "You are all my prisoners." And they were very happy to hear this, and they went onto his little boat and they uh, had a nice dinner and they toasted the Fourth of July. And this then was. Uh, greatly paraded in the Hearst newspapers. And uh, Hearst got a little bit of a feeling that uh, he had had a little part of the war too. And it was all a game for them to feel like they had actually heard the bullets going by their ears and thereby proven themselves as true Americans that were ready to go out and fight in the world. We're often told to remember the Maine. Um, many people have probably forgotten the Maine, uh, but at the time, everyone would, would have known what that was. What, what is the Maine in this in this regard, and, how, and what did Hearst do to promote that story? The Maine is something like what people of my age would remember as the Tonkin Gulf incident, or people of the next generation would remember as the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, these were all giant fabrications that were used to whip Americans into war. So uh, 
at the beginning of 1898, there was intense pressure on uh, President McKinley to send American troops to get involved in Cuba. He was reluctant. Every day you'd have these uh, reports in the Hearst Press and the Pulitzer Press talking about the people starving and dying in the in the heat of the Cuban concentration camps, often stories that were written from New York by people that had never even been in Cuba. Uh, but uh, McKinley was resistant. He was a little bit reluctant. He had been in the Civil War. He was the last president who had actually fought in the Civil War, and he'd been at Antietam, and he wrote, I've seen the bodies stacked like cordwood, and I don't want to see that again. So he was reluctant, and uh, all people were picketing the White House, demanding that we get to war. Uh, and so as a very uh, politically sensitive person, he decided that as a halfway step, what he could do was send a warship, send an American naval vessel to Cuba, not to land troops and not to invade, but just to serve as what used to be called in those days, a gunboat calling card, which meant uh, just a notice that America's watching. So this ship, the USS Maine, was sent to Havana, anchored off the shore and uh, in the harbor, sat there for a while. And then one night in February of 1898, it exploded. And more than 200 Americans were killed. Um, the next day's paper uh, run by Hearst, the, the New York Journal, is, has one of the most magnificently mendacious front pages in the history of American journalism. Um, Explosion of the Maine was the work of an enemy, is the banner headline. And there are about 15 lower headlines below it. Also on the front page is a diagram showing exactly how the Spaniards had blown up the main. So you see the main lying at anchor, and you can see in the drawing under the water line where the landmines have been attached to the hull of the main. Uh, and then you see the cables uh, under the water uh, that connects the, the uh, mine to the uh, explosive uh, trigger that's on shore in the Spanish fortress. So all of this uh, led to a uh, an outburst of anger at Spain, naturally. Here the Spaniards have massacred more than 200 of our soldiers while they were sleeping on a boat. Now, even at that moment, there were doubts about whether this had really happened. Um, there was a an expert in uh, naval ordnance. We had one in the Navy uh, who, who was a teacher at uh, Naval War College, and uh, he wrote, there is no torpedo or landmine that is known in the world that can cause damage like this on a ship. And in the previous few years, there had been several explosions like this on naval ships caused by uh, the design of the ship, which had uh, the ordnance in a series of storerooms right adjacent, just separated by a wooden wall, to the furnace. And there was a lot of speculation that the furnace might have set it off, and actually it was an accident. However, the Navy immediately declared that it had been the act of an enemy, and it wasn't until 70 years later that the Navy finally convened another investigating commission under Admiral Hyman Rickover to investigate what really happened on the main, and they concluded, yeah, it definitely was an accident. It was not an attack. But it fits so well into the narrative of the moment 
it was so perfect to believe that it had been an attack that the detail that it wasn't an attack seemed to get lost and was considered insignificant. So what was the what was then the response to this attack in in scare quotes? Um, definitely uh, a new uh, push in Washington for American intervention in Cuba and perhaps even more important, a willingness on the part of the American public to embrace this. Um, how can we allow this outrage to go unanswered? It's a little bit like uh, a, a series of events that have happened in subsequent history where you blow up an episode, if I can use that phrase, uh, and you pervert the reality of it in order to play onto people's emotions. And the blowing up of the main definitely did lead many Americans to say, okay, that was the last straw. We have to go kick Spain out of Cuba, but with one condition. We are only going to Cuba to kick the Spanish out so that Cubans can finally run Cuba for themselves. This was the clear condition before we went in. And in fact, the U.S. Congress declared that with the force of law. They promised the moment the Spanish are gone, we will withdraw from Cuba and allow Cuba to become independent. So with that caveat, even the anti-imperialists who were outraged at oppressions in Cuba and may have also fallen for the main hoax uh, were willing to join the chorus that it's now time we have to intervene in Cuba. So how does the, the procession of the Spanish-American War is kind of interesting. You have the actual part with Spain, which goes pretty quick, uh, and the, then we have a treaty that's signed and then the debate over that treaty. You described the Battle of San Juan Hill and Teddy Roosevelt's involvement. But the, if you really scope it out, the next part is the Philippines. So how does the treaty and then the question of the Philippines come into play? We call it the Spanish-American War, which I think is a good name from our perspective because it makes it seem like our enemy was Spain and uh, they were the evil colonizers and we were the liberators. But actually, that's not really the full name of the war because most of the war was not fought against Spain. Um, it, it, we only had a few hundred casualties. We, had, we lost more dead people in our Spanish-American war from heat stroke and from poisoned meat than we did from, from battle uh, causes. Um, then, uh, as a result of our seizure of Cuba and our destruction of the Spanish fleet in Manila Harbor, which we destroyed because we didn't want them to attack California in response to us attacking them in Cuba, uh, we suddenly woke up to realize that uh, this place that no American had ever heard of, the Philippine Islands, suddenly was without its longtime government, which was Spain. Now, uh, there was already a revolutionary movement going on in the Philippines. There was a leader. They had a Congress and they had a flag and they wanted to become an independent nation. So then comes this question for the United States before we even get back to what we're going to do with Cuba. We're also thinking about the Philippines. Do we do we take the Philippines now or do we maybe just take Manila? Do we just take one island? It's like 12,000 islands. The Americans knew more about the dark side of the moon than they knew about the Philippines. So this really was a, a great moment of uh, national debate. And uh, we arranged a treaty uh, with Spain under which we forced them to surrender the Philippines. And this treaty had to be ratified in the U.S. Senate. That debate went on for 34 days. It's that debate that's the center of my book, The True Flag. And 
actually, it was discovering that debate that fascinated me and led me to write this book. I'm always looking for untold stories, for episodes that were hugely important in shaping the world, but that for one reason or another have fallen out of history. So I realized that this was the crucial moment when America made this great decision. Where are we going to go in the world? And the congressional debate is so fascinating because every single issue that we debated in Vietnam and Iraq and every other place was debated for the first time then. All the issues about what America is and should be and what are our responsibilities in the world, they all come up during this debate, except that, of course, the senators are so much more articulate <laughs> in those days. They are referring to Pliny the Elder and uh, historical episodes that you'd never dare to speak about with a U.S. senator today. So I tried to uh, rescue this great debate from uh, historical oblivion and try to tell people who might be reading this book today that these arguments that uh, the United States should not be setting off on this path of trying to govern the world are not new. They're not radical. People who are making these arguments today are standing on the shoulders of titans. And I tried to uh, pull out some of the great speeches that were made during that debate on both sides uh, to show that this was a real turning point in American and therefore world history. One of the senators began the debate by saying, it is the greatest question that has ever been debated in the history of this chamber. And he was right. Actually, this debate was even more important than the debate over slavery, because the debate over slavery only affected what was going to happen inside the United States. This debate was not only going to shape the future course of the United States, but the entire future course of the world. And you can see, as I discovered in my research, that foreign diplomats we're following the debate day by day and sending back reports about this senator seems to be leaning this way and we think the debate is going the other way because the whole world realized that for the first, although not the last time, a big decision made in Washington was going to have tremendous impact on the rest of the world. I'd like to ask you a little bit. We talked about Teddy Roosevelt a bit in your book. I never really liked him, but it made me really dislike him. Uh, he, he really is a piece of work. And a lot of his lines and his behavior, it, I must say, it reminds me of Trump, especially sort of the, the manliness aspect of this. But what kind, what was he doing you know, before the war and how did he position himself? And particularly, how did he turn the governor debate of New York into a foreign policy question? That just blew my mind. Roosevelt was uh... – a fascinating psychological as well as political case. Um, he had been uh, a close ally of Henry Cabot Lodge. So Lodge was already a powerful senator. Roosevelt wasn't. Lodge had helped uh, McKinley get elected. And afterward, he went to McKinley and he said, there's only one thing I want. I want you to name my friend Teddy Roosevelt as assistant secretary of the Navy. That was a very important job in those days. And McKinley was very reluctant. Because as he told Lodge, uh, he always seems to be getting into a fight with someone. <laughs> and that was certainly true about Roosevelt. Uh, but finally, uh, Lodge prevailed and Roosevelt became assistant secretary of the Navy. Um, and it was this bizarre episode that I talk about in my book where one day the Navy secretary, John Long, doesn't show up for work because he's got aches and pains and he's going to some quack doctor to get himself treated. And Roosevelt, finding himself alone in the office, 
suddenly starts firing out these telegrams after calling Henry Cabot Lodge to come over and sit next to him. And uh, they authorize unlimited uh, recruitment of new sailors. They tell all naval ships around the world to load up coal, get ready to fight. Um, and then he moves an entire squadron in the Pacific towards uh, the Philippines with the possible idea of making war against the Spanish fleet. All this happens because the boss is out of the office. Uh, McKinley refuses to countermand any of these orders later on, uh, which is just what Roosevelt had counted on. Um, and then as the war approached uh, and Hearst's propaganda was fanning the flames of eagerness in the American public to get into this war, Roosevelt suddenly announced, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to raise this regiment with all my Fifth Avenue club friends and we're going to go fight in, in Cuba to defeat the evil Spaniard. Uh, as I said, he had a lot of trouble um, raising this unit and getting permission to do it. Uh, he finally did. He had two half days of combat, very light, which he believed uh, entitled him to the Medal of Honor. And his whole life he worked. He kept writing letters his whole life. He deserved the Medal of Honor. He, you know, he finally got it because Bill Clinton gave it to him posthumously. Anyway, uh, Roosevelt came home, landed in Long Island, he demanded from the Navy that they give him, or Army, that they give him a Fifth Avenue ticker tape parade, which they immediately rejected, um, and then uh, decided that he would try to get elected as governor of New York. He made a kind of a corrupt deal with the Republicans in New York because their incumbent was not going to be able to win. He had been shown to be dishonest, and although the uh, Republican bigwigs didn't trust Roosevelt, they decided they would make him governor uh, in order to hold the governorship for the Republican Party. In his campaign, he only talked about the importance of the United States going over and conquering the Philippines and spreading its wings all over Latin America and seizing Cuba and taking Puerto Rico. He never even pretended to be interested in issues that affected New York State. And many newspaper editorials of the time point this out, how strange it is for the first time in American history You've got some guy running for governor of a state, and all he talks about is foreign policy. Um, but uh, with tremendous energy, traveled around New York, and he, he used to give these great campaign speeches. So he, the entire speech would be something like five minutes long. He would start out uh, – the beginnings would be a couple of guys from the Rough Riders. The people that he had been with in Cuba would travel with him, and they had their Rough Rider uniform on, and they would run up onto the stage as if they were on a kind of a military expedition, pretending they were on horseback, and they would play trumpets as if they were charging up San Juan Hill. And uh, then they would give Roosevelt this stirring introduction. He would come up and speak for like four minutes, which would only be a series of slogans. The flag can never be taken down. We'll go everywhere. The world is waiting for us. That, that was it. Um, in fact, there's a funny moment where uh, one of the uh, captains from the uh, Rough Riders got up to introduce him and said, uh, on that great day in San Juan Hill, he led us up that hill like lambs to the slaughter, and so he will lead you. <laughs> Later on, Roosevelt told me, you know, that was not the phrase I wanted you to use. Um, but he got elected as the governor of New York, um, and then he has this odd career. So he can't get reelected because the Republican bigwigs decide they don't like him anymore. Um, so they rule him out for reelection. Um, and uh, he's very much in touch with Lodge. So all of their uh, correspondence has been preserved and they're writing to each other every day. So it's fascinating. Lodge is telling him, I've got the idea. You got to be vice president 
uh, because the vice president is very weak and he's sick. Roosevelt hates that idea. He says, that's a terrible job. You have nothing to do. Couldn't I be, first he wants to be a senator from New York. That doesn't work out. He wants to be secretary of war, but McKinley won't even think about that. Um, and finally, after much persuasion, uh, reluctantly, uh, Roosevelt accepts the idea well, it is true that the last president. It is true that the last vice president to become president was Martin Van Buren, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it, it wasn't the same as now. Yeah, yeah. Not 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 considered a promising breeding ground. Um, in fact, immediately after uh, the inauguration, Theodore Roosevelt in, in Washington went up to one of the justices on the Supreme Court and tapped him on the shoulder and he said, "Listen, I want you to help me out. Uh, I want to become a lawyer." I want you to give me some books. What books would I have to read? I have plenty of time now as vice president. Give me the books that I will need to become a lawyer. And the, uh, the Supreme Court justice asked him, uh, why are you interested in becoming a lawyer? And Roosevelt said, well, I'm sh I've never known a hurrah to last eight years. That's what he said. So after eight years as vice president, I'm finished. And I need a, to have a job. So I'll need to be a lawyer because that's what's going to be my job after I leave this stupid vice presidency. Little did he know that soon afterward, McKinley would be assassinated and uh, he would become president. This was exactly what people had feared at the Republican convention. One of them uh, uh, was violently opposed to making uh, Roosevelt vice president and said, don't you realize that uh, this person will be only, we're only one heartbeat away from this madman becoming president of the United States? And that's exactly what happened and brought the U.S. into this era of interventionism. But, you know, Roosevelt later had a very interesting development of his career. So people think of him as the guy that was interested in national parks, uh, the guy that you know, fought the robber barons and was against corporate power. So where do you get this idea that he was this huge imperialist? Well, the answer is he was both. He transformed himself because after he was in office for a while, he began to lose enthusiasm for the idea of foreign intervention. He called the uh, Philippines our heel of Achilles. And he was very proud to say in later life that as president, he never ordered an intervention in which a single life was lost. And this is a pattern that I see in future presidents. They come into office loaded for bear. They're eager to use these great powers they have to go charge into other countries. But as their presidencies unfold, they get punched in the face a few times and they begin to realize that this isn't as great an idea as it sounds. So Roosevelt did have this transition uh, out of the militant imperialism that uh, brought him into power. OK, but don't leave us hanging. Did, did he ever become a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he became a uh, tropical explorer, went off to Africa and, uh, and Brazil um, and uh, – then decided that the guy he'd stuck in as president, William Howard Taft, was no good, and he was going to come back and knock him off. And, and he gave us Woodrow Wilson. Work out. And he, got, and he gave us Woodrow Wilson. Wilson. Yeah. Right, so the, the subtitle of your book is Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of American Empire. So how does – I mean Mark Twain seems an odd fit to the story that you're telling so far. How does he fit into all this? You're quite right. So uh, all of my books are – voyages of discovery, essentially. I'm always interested in uh, finding out things that neither I nor anyone else knew. Uh, so the greatest uh, discovery that I made in writing this book uh, was that this debate ever happened, 
that we had a huge debate in Congress and the entire nation was following it over whether the U.S. should go out into the world and, and be an imperial power or not. And I'm telling you, papers all across the United States were not only reporting the Senate debate, they were publishing entire full texts of the speeches. I envy the people of that era because they had the debate that we don't have anymore. We never debate these great questions. So in that sense, I, I, uh, I was thrilled to discover the depth of this uh, debate. My next biggest discovery was Mark Twain. So I always had what I now realize was a very partial image of Mark Twain. He was Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, Everybody loved him. He had those curly white hairs, and uh, he rocked on his front porch and told funny stories. Uh, this was actually not true at all. Mark Twain was a vituperative, a bitter enemy of imperialism, and his uh, writings are withering. However, uh, many of those writings have disappeared. I have written, I've read many biographies of Twain and also uh, collections of his work, and uh, many of his most uh, intense anti-imperialist statements uh, are, are not to be found. In fact, there are a couple of biographies that say Mark Twain went, did go through a kind of an odd period in the early 19th century. He wrote these kind of crazy things about imperialism, but uh, then he got back to the normal stuff and wrote kind of funny stories again. So but that was not a crazy period. That was Mark Twain. Let, let me just read you uh, one little example of Mark Twain uh, writing about uh, our takeover of the Philippines. Uh, he calls it to the person sitting in darkness. He's addressing it to the ignorant American. There have been lies. Yes, but they were told in a good cause. We have been treacherous, but that was only in order that real good might come out of apparent evil. True, we have crushed a deceiving and confiding people. We have turned against the weak and the friendless who trusted us. We have stamped out a just and intelligent and well-ordered republic. We have stabbed an ally in the back and slapped the face of a guest. We have bought a shadow from an enemy that hadn't it to sell. We have robbed a trusting friend of his land and his liberty. We have invited our clean young men to shoulder a discredited musket and to do bandits work under a flag which bandits have been accustomed to fear, not to follow. We have debauched America's honor and blackened her face before the world, but each detail was for the best. And as for a flag for the Philippine province, it is easily managed. We can have a special one. Our states do it. We can have just our usual flag with the white stripes painted black and the stars replaced by the skull and crossbones. <laughs> so this was not the Huckleberry Finn Mark Twain that I knew about, and I was thrilled to be able to discover the real militant essence of Twain's anti-imperialism. Well, as you point, as you po as Twain points out there, another huge parallel with Philippines is we have this big debate about whether to take it over, and then we have this problem of guerrilla warfare and an insurgency and. Uh, a bunch of ignorance on the part of policymakers who have never been to the Philippines. I think you said that uh, Senator Beveridge was like the only one to go over there. Uh, and then a, a ongoing, very, very violent war that features all the things that we would come to know in Vietnam, such as torture, uh, burning of villages, a mass destruction of, po of indigenous populations. And that caused some of the 
opinion to seem to turn south, at least maybe not enough, though. But what was the Philippines war like? Perhaps the uh, most intriguing of all the ways that the Philippine War foreshadowed later American history is the extent to which we forgot it. This was a horrifically brutal war that went on for years. As you say, uh, we had our first torture scandal there, which was uh, all over the newspapers in the United States. We killed 200,000 Filipinos, um, most of them civilians. And this war is the progenitor of so much of East Asian history. It's, it uh, feeds back right into the Chinese Revolution, uh, the Korean independence movement, uh, Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam. It's really a, a moment that... Uh, was an explosion, uh, set off an explosion of nationalism and anti-Americanism in East Asia. Um, but yet uh, it's faded away in our memory. Uh, it, it, of course, burns in the souls and hearts and minds of Filipinos and Asians. But it shows you how quickly the Americans are able to create a mythic history for themselves. And actually, I think all countries do this. In fact, it's not just something about countries. It's about people, too. We all want to believe the best about ourselves. And uh, we tend to forget or minimize or even pretend uh, not to have ever known about the horrific things that are in our own backgrounds. If we do bad things, you know, it's only for a good reason and we can explain ourselves well. Nations do the same thing. And uh, when we not only carry out this horrifically destructive war in the Philippines, but then essentially wrote it out of our history books, uh, we were giving permission for future generations to carry out these same kinds of campaigns with the confidence that all would be forgiven afterwards. Yeah, it's it's truly shocking. Uh, I did not know the, the level of of violence that occurred. And I, I'm, I'm moderately a student of history, uh, and, and I did not know. Um, but of course, there's more than the Philippines. We have a very bloody war in the Philippines. But Puerto Rico, Guam, and somehow Hawaii gets wrapped up in this uh, in, in a weird way. So this whole era is when we get all of these possessions that we take for granted uh, now. But, but like, how does Puerto Rico get wrapped up in this? Well, you're right that it was in a period of – I calculated it in my book. I think it's like 49 days or something like that. We suddenly found ourselves owning five countries around the world with populations of more than 10 million people. Uh, so uh, our – our role in Cuba, which was the set the spark that set us into this conflict, uh, was, as we promised in the, the Teller Amendment, it was called, uh, only to liberate Cuba from Spanish rule. And then we, will, we promise we will withdraw. After uh, the victory, which was very simple, very quick, um, Americans suddenly began to reconsider. And a couple of things happened in Cuba that we hadn't thought about. It turned out that the Cuban rebels not only wanted to get rid of Spanish rule, they actually had a plan for what they wanted to do after the Spanish were gone. They, they had an idea for their new country, what they were going to do with it. And uh, one of the uh, planks that they were very set on was uh, seizing giant plantations and cutting them up into little parcels so ordinary Cubans could have little farms. Well, those plantations were all owned by United Fruit and other American companies. Uh, another plank in the Cuban revolutionary platform was uh, they're going to have a tariff wall around Cuba so you can foment domestic industries. Uh, at that time, 90% of the uh, in industrial goods in Cuba were manufactured in the United States. 
So that means all those goods wouldn't be able to get in. We didn't like that either. And then, to our great horror, we found out that these great heroes of the Cuban Revolution, who we'd been reading about as the new Minutemen and the new George Washingtons, were black. So that was another reason. Put this all together, we decided, you know, we made a mistake when we promised that we'd let Cuba become independent. And so we passed another amendment saying, uh, just ignore the promise that we made with the force of law. That was the Platt Amendment. Uh, we're taking, we're going to subject Cuba uh, to American power. Meanwhile, um, Puerto Rico is right next door. Uh, we uh, didn't think about Puerto Rico when the war began. I think we took it for one reason. I read the uh, uh, pieces of the Bill Clinton uh, memoir, and he, when he talks about Monica Lewinsky, he has a little line about why, why did he do that? And he said, I, I, I did it because I could. <laughs> That's really the reason that we took Puerto Rico. It, it was just, there. It was yeah. there. It was right next, is nearby, and nobody. It's part of. Uh, it's part of the Spanish Empire. Interestingly enough, Puerto Rico had accepted an offer from Spain to become a quasi-independent under Spanish rule, so they could have all self-rule, uh, elect their own parliament, which they did. And it only allowed, we only allowed that parliament and that government to be in office for nine days before we arrived. And then we, of course, we scoffed at the idea that Puerto Ricans could have a government and rule themselves. Um, so uh, we just decided to take over Puerto Rico, even though at that time, Puerto Rico seemed to be poised for a very interesting uh, future. They, the Spanish gave them more independence than the British had given Canada. And they had an in emerging uh, class of intellectual political leaders. But that was all wiped away when the United States just noticed that Puerto Rico was there and the Spanish power was gone. So we should just take it. It was kind of an afterthought. And uh, I, I think now looking at our leadership in Washington, there's probably a few people that Mm -hmm. Agree. Well, Gu Guam that. is the craziest one. The, the Gu Guam is uh, taken on the way, just like we might as well, correct? That's such a funny story. So uh, what happened was we sent uh, several naval ships from California uh, toward uh, Hawaii, uh, and one of them was given secret orders to uh, to open once they were out of sight of land. And he opened it up and it said, uh, you, you continuing on your regular route, but you're directed to stop at this island called Guam. Uh, it's owned by the Spanish and you're instructed to capture it. And this should not take more than one day. So uh, this captain, they sailed their boat to Guam and the sailors are ready for war. They're, that's what sailors sail to foreign shores to do. They're ready to fight, but they couldn't find any Spanish ships there. They saw one brig, but it was just turned out to be a Japanese uh, uh, bark that was picking up coconuts. So no chance to fight. Then we, we fired a few uh, rounds into the Spanish fortress. And uh, about an hour later, we start to see a, the, the, the guys on the ship see a, uh, a Spanish uh, little launch rowing toward their warship, not with a white flag, but with a Spanish flag on it, which they find quite puzzling. And the Spaniards come on board and say, uh, we're so sorry we could not reply to your salute, but we have not been visited by anybody from Spain for more than a year, so we have no ammunition. And the captain had to say, that was not a salute. We're at war with you, and you are all our prisoners. So they had never heard that there was a war going on, but couldn't do anything about it. They had to surrender immediately. Um, and uh, we 
the uh, captain had the ship's band play the Star Spangled Banner. Um, he raised the American flag over the Spanish fort, but then he had to take it down because it was the only one he had. They were sailing off the next day. And he found a local guy, a Chamorro, that's the name of the local people in Guam, he found a Chamorro who had lived in the United States and become a U.S. citizen. He had been the elevator operator uh, at the office of a San Francisco newspaper. So the captain called this guy aside and he says, okay, you are now the dictator of Guam until somebody else gets here. And so with that, we took over Guam, which we own to this day. It has been a major American uh, military support point. A lot of the Vietnam War was waged from there, and it's sometimes described as a uh, stationary battleship or a stationary aircraft carrier uh, that has become uh, very militarily useful to us. And uh, actually, um, that captain became the first American ever to capture a foreign land and seize it in the name of the United States. And that was an operation that took uh, just a few hours. <laughs> so if you think of all these lessons we have, there's a great quote um, when you look at from Henry Cabot Lodge that you quote in the book discussing how future historians will look at this. So for 30 years, the people, sorry, for 30 years, the people of the United States have been absorbed in the development of their great heritage. Once this work was complete, it was certain that the, the virile, ambitious, enterprising rates which had done it would look abroad. The future historian will date the opening of this new epoch with this mighty conflict at once economic and social, military and naval from the War of 1898. And now you are a future historian, and partially you're saying he was correct. That is an important point. But do you also think that expansionism was inevitable? I mean, if it wasn't Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge, it was going to be someone else, because I don't think any great power just sort of sits back and doesn't look at other nations, at least this seems to be true from history, look at other nations you know, with some allure that maybe we could have that. You're absolutely right. Um... I lived in Turkey for a while as a New York Times correspondent, and I got to learn about Ottoman history. And I, I figured out that in the entire 400 plus years of Ottoman rule, there were a period, there were about maybe 14 or 15 years when the Ottoman Empire was not at war. They would spend their winters deciding where we're going to go to war in the spring, and when the spring came, they set off to conquer some other place. And indeed, the entire history of the Ottoman Empire, if I can summarize it in one sentence. Uh, is a half the first half was conquering countries and getting bigger and expanding, and the second half was losing countries and getting smaller. Uh, actually, this is the pattern for empires, as you point out. It's very rare that uh, giant nations and giant powers sit back and say, uh, you know, I think this is big enough. We, we don't need to get any bigger. Uh, now, could the United States have gone in another direction? I think that if there had been a different a uh, president and a different kind of press, uh, maybe yes, but that's such a big if. Uh, America was primed for this. You can see that the, the sparks were out there. Uh, on the other hand, take a look at China, for example. Uh, China, uh, at least in modern history, has not been a conquering nation. I just saw a quote this week from the president of Malaysia saying, uh, we lived next to China for thousands of years and we remained independent, but Two years after the first European landed here, they conquered us. So there are other ways of extending influence that the United States might have used. Certainly the taking over of the Philippines and the fighting against people who were trying to do what we did in America in 1776, it was not inevitable. It might well have been said at that time, Aguinaldo, 
The Philippine rebel leader is like a new George Washington. Let's give them a great dowry and tell them, good luck, make your own country. You did what we did, and good for you. So I do think uh, it might have been possible for the United States to go in another direction. Indeed, as I point out in my book, uh, many uh, great figures in politics, in business, uh, and in other fields were urging America to take this course. Many of them were so prescient about what this course of action was going to lead to. If we go off onto the imperial path, they all warned that this was going to uh, be a, a terrible turning point and a great historic mistake for the United States. And when you look back at some of their words, they, they really seem a remarkably forward-looking. Let me just finish by quoting this one line from a great speech by William Graham Sumner, who was a great Yale professor and essentially the founder of uh, sociology. Also by coincidence or not, uh, he was the guy who invented the term ethnocentrism, which really plays into his view of the world. So here's, here's a little piece of his, uh, one of his, his probably his most famous speech. The great foe of democracy now and in the near future is plutocracy. Every year that passes brings out this antagonism more distinctly. It is to be the social war of the 20th century. In that war, militarism, expansion, and imperialism will all favor plutocracy. Therefore, expansion and imperialism are a grand onslaught on democracy. Boy, have we seen that come true. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.